Welcome to the No Neutral Moments Podcast. My name is Patrick Payton, and it's my pleasure to discuss, to explore, and maybe even to discover what it means for each one of us to live our lives fully engaged, to challenge each one of us to be fully aware, and completely expecting to engage to the fullest everything we've been designed, called, and gifted to be. So with all this in mind, let's not waste any more time. Let's go ahead and get engaged. Well, hello there, and welcome to this episode of No Neutral Moments. My name is Patrick Payton, and I am your host for this episode and for many others. And today, we really have a special treat for you. In the spirit of No Neutral Moments, uh, this this episode will include an interview uh, with a good friend of mine named Diana Mao, who is the co-founder and president of the Nomi Network. You'll hear more about her and about her life and what she does in this Nomi Network in the interview that follows. But let me give you some background as to who she is and just remind you that this is in line with everything we talk about with no neutral moments. Every moment we are to be engaged in in this relationship with Diana that I and my wife have been able to enjoy is just Another evidence that you never know when one of these moments when you're engaged is going to end up just being one of those magnificent moments. And you'll hear more about that in the interview that's to follow this introduction. But for now, let me give you a little bit of background related to Diana Mao, again, the co-founder and president of Nomi Network. You can find Nomi Network online at N, N as in no, and then the letter O, N O M I. Network, Nomi Network, N O M I N E T W O R K dot org. Diana Mao is the president of Nomi Network, really an abolitionist movement, and she is an abolition abolitionist, really committed to completely eradicating human trafficking in her lifetime. Some would say she's a star of the global movement to abolish slavery. And she co-founded Nomi Network, a nonprofit organization that raises awareness about this human trafficking and modern-day slavery issue, and then creates economic opportunities for survivors and women at risk. Uh, Many organizations have recognized the work that Diana and Nomi Network have been doing. In 2015, the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program selected her for its inaugural class. This is where Diana and I met. Uh, I was selected to be a part of this inaugural class as, as well. Uh, the Presidential Leadership Scholars was a uh, really a partnership between uh, the President, the Bush Libraries, the Clinton Libraries, LBJ Libraries, bringing together uh, scholars from around the world to talk about modern day issues, the resolution of these challenges, and how we face these challenges. And Diana was one of the first people I met uh, when we met together for the first time in Washington D.C. From April of 2013 through the present, she has co-chaired the Nexus Human Trafficking Modern Day Slavery Work Group, and that's an organization that's rallied millions of people to combat modern day slavery. In her ongoing work for justice and freedom, Diana writes for the Huffington Post, for Reuters, and the United States Chamber of Commerce Business Civic Leadership Center. She's a New York Academy of Medicine fellow. And she recently received the Pioneer Award from Asian Americans for Equality and recent Alumni Impact Award from New York University. Diana's faith is, and you'll hear in the the interview to follow, it's it's what fuels her drive for justice. 
This conviction and this drive came about from a trip to Cambodia, where she personally witnessed young children trafficked and sold. In response to that trip, she left her position as a senior consultant at Maximus, Inc. That's where she'd been instrumental in providing business perspective to government health and human services agencies. She was helping to increase efficiency and revenue, as well as strengthening businesses and workforce development programs. All of this work she did gave her the background for how to apply business principles into this not-for-profit sector for better results. She was also involved in mergers and acquisitions, as well as identifying and vetting various companies in the mergers and acquisitions space. As a senior consultant, as I mentioned, this kind of gave her the creative insight to see business practices and methods that could be best used in eradicating human trafficking and modern-day slavery. She's also worked at the Renaissance Economic Development Corporation, where she was responsible for a portfolio of development projects. Finally, Diana earned a master's degree in public administration with a specialization in international management from New York University's Wagner Graduate School of Public Service, and prior to that, a bachelor's degree in business economics and Chinese from the University of California, Santa Barbara. Now I hope you will enjoy this interview with Diana Mao that I had the privilege of sitting down and interviewing and having this time with her at a recent event here in Midland. And again, I hope you will enjoy it. You'll learn valuable lessons from Diana's life. And you also will go visit Nomi Network and see how you can be a part of the modern day abolitionist movement. Well, welcome to the No Neutral Moments podcast. My name is Patrick Payton, and I'm here with my friend. I'm just going to get comfortable so we can talk and ignore all the Midland people here. Because um, I have, we have an audience here. This is the first ever audience of No Neutral Moments as well. And uh, thanks to Wes and Lisa. And I won't give a last name because it might cost Wes more later. So <laughs> anyways, I, um, I am seated with Diana Mao. And I'm going to let... Diana, since this was sort of a last-minute thing, um, I don't have all my Wikipedia research on you and all the dirt and things that might come up. So we're going to talk about Diana's story and the things she's involved in because it's just an incredible story. But I'll, I'll begin by telling everybody how I met her. Um, I was, I think, this thing called the Presidential Leadership Scholars that Diana and I were a part of. Were a part of. They, were, they found 59 of the most qualified people in the country and then there was one runt out of Midland that was able to go, and that was me. And so I found myself, as I was telling Diana, among all these highly educated people, and I'm going to tell on you because she goes, oh, you were wonderful. And then I said, well, where did you go to college? Well, I went to graduate school at NYU. And so I was like, exactly. And, but we met each other, really didn't know too much about each other. Well, nobody knew anybody in the Presidential Leadership Scholars. And Diana's one of those that has an incredible story about work in India. But what got us to this podcast was last summer, we're in San Francisco, and we're at the Embarcadero, and you don't expect to run into anybody at the Embarcadero except a bum or somebody on the street or just people that are running into you. And I walk by Diana in the middle of this mall. I mean, it's wall-to-wall people in the summer. And I remember we walked by each other, I think, and I thought, that's Diana. And I turned around, and she's like, that's Patrick. And so we just... Have this moment, and we talked about her coming out here sometime. I really didn't think you would, to be really honest. I thought, it's really not convenient. And when she emailed me the other day and said, I'm going to be in Dallas or San Antonio, I'm still thinking, Diana, I'd love for you to come out here, but no. And she says, yes. So she came into town. So 
This is Diana Mao, and so glad you're with us. Why don't you just sort of start with telling everybody kind of where you're from. I said we'd start at your birth, but we won't. We'll just assume that took place. And let's just, um, let's just start with a little bit of your family and um, also where you went to college and then a little bit of NYU, and then we'll trans- translate into or move on into what you're currently involved in. Great. Thank you. It was the best moment running into you and meeting Cindy. And that's what brought me here. Cindy and, no, I'm just kidding. And Patrick, of course. Nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, so I uh, grew up in Southern California in Pasadena and um, grew up in, um, I would say, a non-Christian family. Uh, my grandmother is 104 now and she's a believer. And so she used to drag me to church uh, every Sunday, and I would hate it because my parents didn't go. And um, eventually, uh, as I got older, she started sending me on mission trips to like Brazil, to Egypt, and volunteering in the slum villages. Um, so she grew up in China, very privileged. And um, my grandfather and her both were, you know, spoke English and were Christian. And so she wanted me to also be exposed to the world. Um, but unfortunately, her children. Uh, didn't have the same experiences because of communism. So um, shortly after Mao came to power, they fled to Hong Kong, and then their children basically were left orphans in China. Um, And my dad, eventually, I learned actually only eight years ago that he was thrown in labor camp. So growing up in Southern California, um, I always knew my dad was pretty off in terms of his behavior. He had PTSD and didn't really understand it fully until later on in life. Um, when um, you know God called me to start Nomi Network in 2009, and so I went to UC Santa Barbara for college. Um, lived in a ministry house with 23 other Christians, 12 girls, 12 guys. A lot of marriages came about from that Christian community. I think we're going to leave that. <laughs> and, uh, we're going to leave that right there. Okay. And, <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of did it. Uh, I'm still not married, but you know that's okay. Uh, God had a different plan, and so. Um, after that, I eventually was called to move to New York um, to get a master's in public administration, and that's what led me to the work of Nomi Network. Okay, so what was your degree in, in UC Santa Barbara? Um, in Santa Barbara is economics, economics and accounting. Okay, and then you go to grad school in New York, and you, what are you studying in New York again that you said? Public policy, public policy. and international development. And then what was the next step after that? What was your career step out of... Oh, so out of graduate school, um, I went into corporate consulting for a firm um, in Washington, D.C., and I worked in corporate consulting. But in graduate school, um, I was sent on a research, a microfinance research fellowship to Cambodia. So I spent uh, 10 weeks in Cambodia in the poorest parts of Cambodia. And Cambodia, just historically, um, 1978, um, really the genocide ended there, and so Millions of people were killed, uh, mostly educated and, you know, more, you know, elite, I would say. And so um, when I got there, you know, it was still very much um, the country was recovering from that. So I saw a lot of poverty and then um, a lot of families that were desperate, particularly families that we were interviewing to gather microfinance data on how the microfinance loans were impacting their livelihood. They had gone through like four or five loan cycles, still living below a dollar a day, still having no assets, living in straw huts. And particularly one instance, a single father of seven children, after we surveyed him, about 100 questions, he offered my male colleague his youngest daughter in broken English, like, you like her, you take her. 
And so we were in Badabang, which is a village where it's near the Thai border, still a lot of landmines there. So we had to take a car, we had to take a moped, we had to walk through, like it was rainy season, so muck with leeches to get to the village where this family lived. And this um, this man, he lost his wife. His wife had passed away just a year before of a disease. So it just made me really think of the lack of access. And it's not that he you know, was selling his daughter maliciously, like I'd read in some stories or saw documentaries. It's really like out of desperation, no economic opportunity. So that's where the idea started coming about of what if we can provide jobs for these communities and perhaps they would they would have better choices and alternatives and wouldn't have to sell their children. So this is stirring in you a, a passion is, is what I'm hearing. As you're over in Cambodia, you're looking at this, it's getting inside of you and, and the, you, you share a similar story to some of the people in this room. Talk about what shifted it for you. What moved you from saying you know what I really want to do is make a career for myself and be um, out of the not-for-profit world and make money and work. Now now what turns you to, no, I'm going to make the, my, my business of life to, to provide life for people. So what, what were the events that, that shook you? You just listed one, but what were the other things that kept pushing into you that, you know, in keeping with this podcast, we said there's no neutral moments. When you look back and you think, that was a big moment for me. What were some of the critical things that pushed you towards NOMI? And then we'll talk about what NOMI Network does. That's a great question. Um, there were a lot of external factors that kind of, um, I was really kind of living neutrally because I was working corporate consulting right out of graduate school, but I really wanted to contribute and help. So I had these ideas and what I would do is during uh, weekends and summers, like volunteer. So I wasn't like signed up to start a nonprofit because I didn't want to go into nonprofit. Um, an Asian cultural nonprofit. My dad still till last year would write me long letters telling me how disappointed he is that I'm in ministry because in his mind, nonprofit is equated to church and he has some, you know, obviously um, resentment towards church. Um, so so that was very difficult. And so I, and most Asian American women and men don't go into nonprofit. It's not a sector that um, parents typically encourage their children to go into. And so I also, you know, all these external family pressure and also just personally, my identity was so much in like, oh, I'm in corporate consulting, I'm doing this, I'm, I'm traveling, you know, all of these things. And it was pretty exciting, but I couldn't shake the experience in Cambodia. So the summer after graduate school, I already signed a contract to start um, in D.C. Um, right after grad school. But that summer, I went to Cambodia, um, and I uh, recruited a fellow um, uh, sister in Christ at church who had a passion for anti-trafficking. So I didn't want to go to Cambodia by myself. Frankly, I was a little scared. So she came with me, and we met with 12 anti-trafficking organizations, including IJM, which I think probably a lot of you have heard of. Um, and so we talked... What is IJM? Make sure just... Oh, sure. IJM, International Justice Mission, it's an organization um, that decades ago would rescue children in brothels. Uh, Gary Haugen is a very strong Christian who started the organization, and it's one of the leading organizations now in anti-trafficking. Okay. Um, and so we went there and we um, surveyed organizations like IJM and talked to the workers, talked to the clients, and then presented our idea of um, working with them to 
provide them with skills so that they can sell their products to like Walmart or Sephora. So really skill building. And so across the board, they all needed that assistance because they were providing shelter, they were providing counseling, but they were trying to provide sustainable income generation, and that was the gap. So in 2008, when I was in Cambodia, no one was really doing providing that piece and a linkage to the market. So we started just working and designing and helping them. Um, and my co-founder, my third co-founder, quit her job as a senior buyer and financial planner for Saks Fifth Avenue, which you all probably heard of. Um, she's uh, was going through kind of a eye-opening experience of uh, volunteering in missions in Af- South Africa. And so she was in her 40s at the time and had this moment where she wanted to do something. And so she was our first hire and she started working with the shelters. And then we were still, I was still half in, half out because I couldn't think of the idea. I, I couldn't bear... I didn't want to fundraise and I was like, oh, we can continue sustaining this with our own money and like our own like, you know manpower as well but finally came a moment when we were reaching more demand than what we had capacity to give how is that demand coming about i mean so i guess in listening to you it went from cambodia to now we're full-blown and we've just stolen somebody from Saks fifth avenue in our organization are you guys just going over several times a year are you going over in the summers are you just um, running into people? It's, are you having random San Francisco meetings where you're finding people and go, oh, they can help? How, how's that all fleshing out that it's coming together as this, wow, this is something we're going to have to do? What's that timeline like? What's that like? Yeah, we were, um, we were pretty connected in New York City, so we recruited our friends that worked for like McKinsey, worked for brands like Macy's, so we leveraged our own network. And so I'll just kind of backtrack a little so in Cambodia we went to a shelter where we met a girl who was eight years old and she was sold by her stepfather her name's Nomi and so Nomi um she uh, still right now is 18 still has the mind of like an eight-year-old and bipolar and her stepfather basically um sold her in the village and when we met her at the shelter she ran to us and embraced us mm-hmm. and my co-founder and I we were kind of taken back because we were at the shelter that was an undisclosed location the director picked us up at our hotel it was very kind of secret so we thought the girls would be very um you know non-engaging so she ran to us showed us her pet rabbits and befriended us and spoke a little bit of English too and so we were like we're gonna name the organization know me after her know me and then network was like us like we thought of ourselves as a network behind Nomi. so we always thought we were going to find more people to network for her so that she and other women can get out of this mm-hmm. and so the network in new york we just started building it so it was like church friends it was like colleagues um, designers and we would meet we would call it Nomi nights where we would come one of our offices we would host it buy everyone pizza and then we would have them help us with designs and like volunteering going overseas and at that time my co-founder Supe had already quit her job so she was there pretty much a um, few months out of the year um, rotating her time there so when did you go all in Yeah, so I went all in. Um, I'm going to use some Bible language here (laughs) since we're in Texas. (laughs) Oh, okay. That's fair. 
<laughs> Not in New York. People will be like, what? Just kidding. They may um, listen to this in New York, so know, you, know, you never okay. know. We're, we're yeah. friends. They'll, they'll understand. <laughs> um, so in... Um, like in 2011, I was working, you know, I was like basically consulting, you know, leaving Sunday, traveling till Thursday, coming back, back and forth. And also Nomi was really picking up because we were working with the shelter called Hagar in Cambodia. And we had helped them secure, basically grow from 23 women to 80, secure order from walmart.com. And then also now they're producing not just tote bags, but Levi's jackets for samples. Okay, how does that stop? Okay. <laughs> how, how do you, all of a sudden, you're producing for Walmart? What? So, so we um, found a way in with Walmart through our, our network, mm-hmm. and we started presenting the idea of sourcing products from the shelters that we worked with. So that was a huge leap. So we worked with Walmart on pricing. Basically, they also didn't want complicated products. They, we needed to meet their pricing. So our, my co-founder, that's her special area. She's you know, looking at Excel spreadsheets. So we're able to compete with that and then meet their requirement. And they launched and they kicked off some of the products that we've been working on. And so with that order, um, the organization was able to be from the brink of closing um, 23 women and shutting down operations during economic downturn in 2009 when factories were shutting to then growing in 2012 um, to 80 women wow. through that. And, and, and in that season where you said, I got to go all in. No, I didn't go all in yet. Okay. Um, so, so like, we're going to eventually get yeah, to how so, you get all in. So, okay. so I was feeling really like burnt out because I wasn't really plugged into my community. I wasn't seeing friends, and it was really my co-founders and I were working pretty late, like two a.m. And I was like, if I was in D.C., we were like chatting and just kind of getting stuff done. So I was talking to God, and I was like, God, you know, I'm really passionate. We're really passionate, but think we need funding and somehow more support because you know just volunteer power is not enough right now because there's a lot of work to do so in my prayer and just call out I was like well can you provide in some way and so during before that um, there was an opportunity to apply for a grant with the Department of State and given my background in public policy I just like wrote the grant and submitted it like to the Department of State um, so like the end of, I think it was October 2011, we found out that we got the grant. And at the time, we were working for my Wall Street apartment. We had the P.O. box, not even the P.O. box. We used my co-founder's office as the office, like, address. <laughs> and so we got this grant, and it was not, like, hugely significant. It was about $200,000, exactly. And it allowed us to, um, you know, hire Supe full-time, Hire me full time. Um, hire India team because the grant was for India. Build our India office. Um, so definitely, you know, we all took a drastic pay cut, but it was still. Yeah, I was getting ready to say uh, <laughs> two hundred thousand dollars hired, 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 hired. It's like, so you made five thousand dollars that year. Basically, yeah, yeah okay. that's okay. Consulting had savings, so it was fine. Um, so we took a chance, and God really showed me that. You know he was going to provide, mm-hmm. so that was the year um, May two thousand and twelve. I quit my job before that, and I started Nomi in May two thousand and twelve full time. Okay.
So you guys propped it up in 2012, and then just, I guess, fast forward a little bit because you're already full-blown into this by the time we get to presidential leadership scholars. So between 2012 and 2015, what were some of the significant, uh, I would, we'd call them signposts or markers for you as an organization in those three years? Yeah, we um, were able to successfully train um, the first cohort of women in rural India develop a curriculum that in 12 months, someone who's illiterate, um, living in a hut in India without access to water or electricity can be uh, employable or start her own business. And so that was a curriculum we developed in partnership with the Department of State. And that, you know, in 2000, by 2014, we could see tangible impact in their lives, not just self-confidence, savings, income, but they were also cutting out the generational cycle of slavery. So our curriculum um, was tested back and forth. And so huge sacrifice that was made by my co-founder, she actually moved to Bihar, the poorest state, and I lived there months at a time. And this is an area where you hear about the violence against women in India and the rapes that happened. This is the poorest state where there already have been three murders on our watch. We've seen kids get murdered. This is the lawless state, and so we stayed there, and it was really an act of faith, and that God would protect us, and thankful he did, and nothing, you know, horrible things happened there, but we, as a team, were, you know, really protected. How how did you deal with fear? Uh, You're in a place where you know it's one of the most dangerous places in the world. How did you wrestle through that? How did you deal with that, and were there times that you thought, I'm just not going to do this anymore? Or was there just a something in your soul that kept driving you? How did you deal with that? Because I know some of us have traveled to fairly sketchy places, um, but we've come home rather quickly. You've stayed there. You have an employee who leaves. This is the Saks Fifth Avenue employee who goes from Saks Fifth Avenue to, I'm going to give my life to this. How did you guys fight through that? Yeah, I would say... Um we fought through it through the network, um, through our team of prayer, <laughs> which is very powerful because there are times when we wanted to give up and just leave. It's not like when you first enter rural India and you visit the brothels, which we did with our local staff, who is a male. Um, we hire all, it helps that we also have all mostly male staff in rural India. And so um, having that network of prayer support and people that are cheering us on and our board really kept us going as well. And we, my co-founder and I, both have a deep faith in God, and we were there together. I think if I was there by myself or she was there by herself initially, we probably wouldn't have continued. But because we were both there together, um, we've overcome you know, just the initial like mafia threats and like... Um, men would come to our office when we were conducting training and threaten us or threaten the women because they didn't want us to be there. Mm -hmm. And so, honestly, I would say the fearlessness comes from Christ. I mean, we work in an area where women are scared to leave their huts. That's the environment that we work in. And for us, it's not like I'm not scared of death, but I'm just like, what's the worst that can happen? And oftentimes, it's never, you know, the cost. Like, I'm very like risk tolerant because I feel like I have really nothing to lose but everything to gain. And I've seen just such impact that we've made that it, um, 
you know, it, it makes it really, it makes it worth it. And so when we're there, we're very practical. So for example, there are times I'm very scared there. Like, I don't leave our little compound after 6 p.m. And we always go with our male staff. Like, if we're going to go buy something, um, if we have a driver. And at one point, we had to have security when we had mafia threats. This was, like, years later when we could afford security. So I think we were very practical that we weren't living in the United States where I could just walk around New York City at 1 a.m. and feel safe, that we were actually in rural India where women are not treated as equal citizens, and just because we're foreign doesn't mean that we're not going to be a target. So that was the mentality, like, shift that we changed kind of the way that we would operate Mm -hmm. locally. Yeah. Um, Gosh, it's hard to follow up with a a question when you realize kind of where we live and then listening and watching a hero like yourself who I think when you just said it's not like walking around New York City at 1 o'clock, I'm kind of like, no, that's bad. Like, you you don't walk around New York City at 1 o'clock, and you're like, oh, I feel so safe. And I'm like, what? what is my disconnect here? So um, how many women has Nomi Network taken from what you just said a minute ago was basically living in the slums, illiterate, unemployable, to employable? So since really 2012, before that, we've... Um, we're celebrating our 10-year anniversary this year. Uh, we've served 9,000 women, and that's not including their children because they have savings and they're actually educating their children, paying for tutoring services, cutting off the generational cycle of slavery mm-hmm. that um, we're really passionate about seeing the next generation not susceptible to the same cycles. And so that um, is has been amazing. And we've learned so much that this year we're uh, looking forward to serving 5,100 women and um, eventually in the next few years, 100,000, which is my hope and vision is 100,000. And the communities that are not susceptible to exploitation and re- measuring reduction of trafficking in these areas. 5,000 women this year? Yeah, 5,100. This year. So that over half of the total of what you've served. Yeah. Wow, that is an incredible... What I told these... I, I think I would be, do a disservice to this group if I didn't ask you this so we can remain continue to have perspective in a place where we live that sometimes loses perspective pretty quickly. What's the cost to take a woman from slums to success? Yeah, so when the Department of State funded us, it was much higher. It was about 2,500 a woman through our program. And that's because we had to set up the office. We had to upgrade, build up, like we had, you know, we were in the hut area, so we found the best building and had to build it to be two stories. Now, our new model, we're able to, um, for $50 a month, uh, for 18 months, we were able to get a woman through our training cycle to either start her own micro-enterprise or to work for Marriott Hotels, Shahi Factories, Government Hospital. So we've built a lot of bridges with like Marriott Calcutta, with the private sector. So it's really, um, you know a pipeline of rural talent into these front, you know, more entry-level jobs. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned um, when we were talking this evening before we came here how you've tried to forge partnerships with, with labels and with brands, but because of um, really just the, I guess, the the chain of getting 
things together and manufactured, it gets very difficult. But you also mentioned Sephora. Talk about what Sephora is doing. Because I know my wife won't walk by a Sephora. Now it's going to get worse. And so I just want to know, um, I'm hoping Nordstrom has nothing to do with you. Um, but could you tell us what Sephora is doing? And, and just who have been, not, not in a way for us to say, well, we'll support them or not support them, but what have you found in the corporate world? And I'll preface it some more and, and talk about Sephora. Those of us who are in the faith community oftentimes do everything just for the faith community. What I, what I really respect about what you guys are doing is this is not just about trying to see if a woman goes from slavery to salvation. That would be in our eyes, wonderful. But we want her out of slavery. And then if we get a chance to go even deeper in the soul, that's great. But So to see what you're doing and to partner um, with companies and organizations to say, just help us change. You're, you're pretty much the female version of William Wilberforce in oh India. So, um, so talk about Sephora. I uh, sort of went around that question several different ways, but how what you've seen in the corporate world is you guys have been able to sort of bring this to light and change this dynamic? Yeah, it's um, taken nearly a decade. Um, When we first met Sephora, um, when we were still not as established, um, we met the VP of marketing, and she told us that this is a topic that they don't want to touch because it's very controversial. And this was a few years ago, um, and they only touch topics that their employees care about. So their employees tell them what issues at the time, it was like HIV and breast cancer and the typical, you know, women's issues. And then fast forward like two years ago, um, or back two years ago, I um, just reached out. I'm kind of a persistent person if I feel persistent. So so I reached out to Sephora again. I'm BC. glad you clarified that because there was a lot of passivity we were gathering as we listened <laughs> yeah. to your life. No, so I'm just glad. Sometimes. Um, so... I reached out to her again, and at that time, human trafficking, thanks to the great anti-human trafficking community, you know, IJM, and many you know, organizations here, Lisa, and people are more aware. And so there's just been heightened level awareness across the board in media. So that was the perfect timing, and they were ready to take on this issue. And so it was our, you know, they selected us as the anti-trafficking organization. We were the only one that they started working with. Now they work with many others, but initially um, two years ago. So they um, co-developed products with us. We have a line of cosmetic cases with the Sephora logo that we produce for them in Cambodia. Um, So they um, sell it. They also give it away to, um, as a CSR, they have a lot of products, their loyalty programs. CSR. uh, Corporate social responsibility. Um, And then they also produced a video highlighting our work in Cambodia. We have a fashion school and incubator now in Cambodia. It's less rural. It's more urban programming. And so they featured um, a video of one of our participants that made the uh, cosmetic case. And then they're committed to sourcing more from us. So they've moved us into different departments within Sephora to increase orders. And for us, like we are not for profit, but traditionally on average it used to be 15 percent of our income came from product sales now it's a little less because a lot of our um you know as we're growing our trading sites a lot of is philanthropy but um, now our percentage is about nine percent of our revenue comes from earned revenue which is like orders from sephora from walmart um 
our online sales, things like that, and products we produce. Do you see, um, are, is there a particular segment of the first world economy that you wish would get more engaged in this? I, I'm ask, asking that question from a bias of where we live because we are surrounded by multinational energy companies. So if you want to talk about that, great. But are, are there particular segments that you say, why don't they wake up to this? Yeah, definitely. I would say the segment um, that I really was passionate about and why um, initially one of the reasons why I joined PLS was really the consumer products, fashion, and also you know apparel and accessories. Because human trafficking, I just want to share some stats, like 46 million people are estimated to be trafficked, and 70% of that is attributed to labor. So it's like child and forced labor. So most of that is reflected in the supply chain all the way down to Tier 3. Tier 3 would be like cotton, um, and then tier two would be like zipper. Tier one would be like cut and sew. So it's in essence, every person is perpetuating slavery in some way without knowing because there's no other viable solution right now because companies from the buyer side having exposure to my co-founder, she as a buyer and senior planner was only looking at margins and how to get cheaper products, how to get it turned over quicker that's what all she was looking at. And so most companies still operate like that today. Not much has changed. So for us, if an order, small order from Sephora and Walmart, I can see the impact it has on my organization. Can't imagine if like a large company like Gap were just to turn 1% of their sourcing to source from like some of the groups we work with or Nomi Network. That Are you working with Gap time. right now? Yeah, we're working with Gap. Um, Gap has uh, on the employee engagement side. So they have employees that are serving as mentors for our fashion school and incubator. They're dedicating their volunteer time. Um, Sourcing is a little bit more challenging, to be frank, um, for most of the larger brands. Explain that a little bit more. So they're... They're, they're not, there's no commitment to source from smaller... Something more responsible. More responsible, in essence, okay. yeah. Um, they do have some codes of conduct, so I'm not saying Gap is bad. They have codes of conduct. They have factory audits. So their factories are constantly being monitored, um, but there are actually brands that don't have any monitoring compliance and don't really care because they're just, you know, you're buying a $10 shirt, and so you're going to still buy it. If you, if you hear, like, an ex, you know, like, them being called out. Most consumers forget about it and they'll continue buying the $10 shirt. So it's not going to matter to them anyways. So there are brands like that that operate under that context. So that's where I see the huge change that needs to happen in order for the 46 million to come down. Are there brands you won't buy? Yes. <laughs> what are your top three? Um, uh, I would say I can just give you a top one and then you could kind of based on their price point. I won't buy Forever 21, which I don't know if there are any Forever 21s here. Not here. Yeah, because they had a problem in L.A. in 1997 where their factory workers, mostly minorities, like Chinese, they were being exploited and paid 
I don't know, like nothing. Mm-hmm. And so they, um, the DOL, like audited them, and they basically Department of Labor. Yeah, audited, and that they closed the, that factory. Sorry, I'm talking in like yeah. acronyms. You're talking you. like the military. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and so they then shut down, and then started building factories in Asia, like in, mm. I forgot which country. So they just move overseas. And that's what you find a lot of brands do, especially fast fashion. Another thing they do is they um, go and copy. So you have a designer like Oscar De La Rente, for example, that New York Fashion Week, they'll go and copy it and produce it faster in Asia. And then not only are they exploiting, but they're also, in essence, kind of stealing designs. Um, so you have brands like that, that if you can buy like a fourteen ninety nine dress, it's probably not ethical. So I want to finish up here because they may have a few questions for you. Um, what are the biggest opportunities in front of Nomi right now and the biggest need? And they may be one and the same. So the biggest opportunity might be the biggest need. And again, I, I promise these people I'm not trying to pull the rug out from under them. We're not making this a financial night, but I would like to know in that question what the Nomi Network budget is, and so what your budget is, what the need is, and the opportunity. Sort of wrap all that together, and then I want to finish with another question. Thank you. Um, so the budget last year was two point two million. Um, the budget this year is three point five, and we're planning to currently we're doing a needs assessment to replicate our uh, India workforce development model in Cambodia in the United States. So we've been invited to Dallas, to Las Vegas. Um, Large hotel casino invited us to consider starting there because there's a huge problem there. Um, And then also New York City, simply because our headquarters is in New York City and we're closest to also the problem seeing it and working with survivors directly there. So... That uh, we're hoping to launch, raise the funds we need to launch that. So that's the 3.5 is we're trying to hit that mark. And uh, we currently have 80 employees, 55 overseas, and then 25, 10 in New York, and 15 more management uh, between New York, uh, between India and Cambodia. We have a country director, actually, it's Sherry Patrick, that is from Compassion. He was Compassion International's country director, and now. Um, we thankfully recruited him. He's our India country director. Um, so we're definitely growing. And the biggest opportunity I see is of the global figures of slavery, half the world's population of people in slavery are in India. So I really believe that if we can measure reduction, if we can make a critical um, you know, 100,000 women trained in India, we could see the reduction and then also share you know, the, the model. Um, we're already sharing the model, and we're actually going to um, social franchise the model in Africa and other parts of the world. So that's the opportunity is to replicate it with local organizations and we would be able to reduce our costs and to serve women um, more quickly and more efficiently Mm -hmm. and also capacitate other organizations to adopt a workforce development, economic development model and to strengthen their work as well. So that's the opportunity I see. That's phenomenal. Everybody in this room knows uh, how much we make about what your favorite books are and the books I like to read. I would ask you, what are your favorite books or most gifted books that you think everybody should read? And you can't say the Bible. (laughs) Yeah. um, Well, I read a lot of books. The most recent book that I've read that's been really helpful for Nomi and for me is um, a few books. Extreme Ownership. Uh, Extreme Mm -hmm. Ownership is written by 
former Navy SEAL. Jack Willick. And um, part of it is, I think, um, I've learned more ownership as well because there's so much cost to what we're doing. You know, there's always threats. There's India is the wild, wild west. And so taking ownership and not being scared to take ownership that this is my responsibility. I think, frankly, I did sign up to to do this, like to be in India and to be kind of susceptible to threats. Like that's not what initially I thought I was signing up for. So this book has taught me like you're in it and you're you're in, you're you're responsible <laughs> in essence. And so that's translated throughout the organization all the way to the field that I've encouraged and I've taken lessons and taught my team. Um, and a lot of developing countries, ownership is a huge challenge, mm. you know, because you really, what you see in your community is kind of how you behave. And ownership is, you know, one of the reasons why India struggles with human capital, in my opinion. And it's noted in articles that they have a huge um, lack of human capital in even industries like banking. And there's just, there's just like the, the gap is critical thinking, problem solving, and also ownership. So that, and then the other book I read recently, um, I had the privilege of meeting a girl this past New Year's. Um, she um, has an amazing story. So I read her book uh, called uh, Seeing the Face of Jesus. She basically died, uh, was killed by tourists, a, a terrorist, a bomb uh, blew up in the church she was attending in a Middle Eastern country. And she um, died. And basically her boot, and then went to heaven and Jesus asked her if she wanted to go back, and she said, yes, my family is Muslim. So she went back, and this is her story. I met her in New Year's, and I found out she had a book, so I immediately got it. And then I bought 10 copies, gave it to all my friends, because it just keeps me that there's hope. You know, like, there's so much hope and miracles, and I work in a context of just bad stories, like, all around. Like, I always read case field cases, needs cases. So I'm constantly reading reports from the field that are not, I mean, women that need our assistance that are not happy stories. And so this gives me, I always think of now her story recently when I'm feeling down. I'm like, this woman like around my age like died and she still has a scar from her like skull, you know, and her book is just incredible. I was just so touched by it. So that two books. <laughs> that, that is tremendous. And I'm pretty much going to call that an end to our discussion here being recorded because I want to just get to questions. But um, I guess the last thing I would say is how do you, because every time I see you, you're smiling, you're laughing, and yet you're rescuing people from slavery with all of your life. You're giving your life away. You Mafia is threatening you. Um, you feel safe in New York at one o'clock. That's a, I don't know where that comes from. Um, what is it that um, maybe is just a What's a daily practice of yours that keeps you filled with joy? Yeah, a daily practice would be um, not so much in the winters, but running in Central Park. Um, That's not even fair. <laughs> That's like a daily. <laughs> That's not a, running at I really, the duck pond. It really just. You know, it, it's amazing. Um, it really keeps me going. And also, I would say I spend a lot of time in the morning, like, reading the Bible mm -hmm. and also just praying and listening to my, my worship music. So mm -hmm. that's, like, usually meditation, like, yeah. in the morning. Just a meditation 30, practice. 30, 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, and then 
then I start my day. Okay. For those who are listening, how do they find out more about Nomi Network? Um, they can visit www.nomi.network, N-O-M-I network.org. Okay. And Social media? Social media. We have Twitter. We have Instagram. We have Facebook. Same handle, Nomi right. Network as well. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Thank it you. has been an honor to sit here with you. I'm going to make sure everybody from PLS knows that uh, they need to listen to the alumnus of the first class. Hey, first class is probably the best class, but we'll just yes. see how that it goes down. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. PLS. So that'll do it for us and for the uh, No Neutral Moments podcast. My guest, uh, just honored to be with you, Diana Mound. Thanks again. Thank you. Honored to be here.